Welcome to Geek Sweat. This is another one of our exciting, inspirational interviews. I'm King Dom. I'm joined, as always, by TJ. Thank you for having me, King Dom. TJ, we have a very, very special guest today. Do you have any inkling of who it is? I'm not sure, but I'm hoping it's another behemoth of the industry to give us some more insight for our inspiration. You won't be disappointed. This man has 40 years of experience in the film industry. He's a producer with extensive experience of many other aspects of film production. And he has also undertaken some exciting research into the very origins of cinema. Our special guest today yeah. is David Nicholas Wilkinson. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Thank you. So David, with someone with such an extensive experience of cinema, it's hard to know where to start, but I think I'd like to ask you about your childhood memories first, before you entered into the film industry for the first time. What was your most memorable experience with cinema and film? The film that had the most profound effect on me was Lawrence of Arabia. And it's because I'm from Leeds and Peter O'Toole was born in Leeds. There is, in his later life, um, Galway tried to say that he was born there. Well, he wasn't because I've seen the birth certificate. And um, Lawrence of Arabia, because he was a local boy and it was such a hugely popular film, it played at the Majestic Cinema, which is now why, where Channel 4 have their um, northern headquarters. It played there for something like a year. And in those days, you did have films for lasting for a very long time. Um, Mianti Nell used to work for Walt Disney, and Walt Disney had an office in the uh, Majestic Cinema. Uh, extraordinary, we'll, we'll come to it later, but you know, Leeds is the birthplace of film and Walt Disney of all the Hollywood studios is the only one to have had an office uh, in Leeds and something they closed down, I can't remember when, but it got reopened in, in 2009. And the, it was the original film, so it was over three hours long. And I just, loved everything about the film. It was an enormous film and this was a huge screen and it was a single screen cinema, um, very large auditorium. We set up, sat up in the balcony and it wasn't that full. It was still good, but because it had been playing for such a long time, I think most of Leeds had seen it by then. And I, I remember one of the things is that uh, in the, there was an interval for it being three hours. Funnily enough, I'm going to copy that in my latest film, which is three hours. And they very astutely, the interval came when they were in the desert. So you'd had all these desert scenes. And in those days you had um, women with tray, wonderful sort of uniforms they wore. And they had a tray which was fastened around their neck and they would have in the tray all the different ice creams, like, a bit like you get in the theatre now, but this was quite common in cinemas. And so they'd have all the um, ice creams and drinks. And I can remember the queue was enormous because we were all thirsty. And my dad bought me a Kiora orange with the straw and a peach Melba ice lolly. 
And we all, I mean, just, we were so thirsty, that extraordinary, there we were in, as the audience, but we were, we were actually there in the desert. And I'd never seen anything like that since. It was like the entire audience queuing up. And uh, so that was a very vivid memory. And I waited a very long time to see it again. I kept wanting to see it. And in those, I don't think it ever, certainly when I was younger, I don't recall it ever being on television. And there was no such thing as video. And it wasn't till video came along in the late, 80, uh, late 70s, early 80s that I got a copy. And it was everything I remembered, except I was seeing it on a small screen. And such a powerful film. But I went to the cinema a lot. I mean, pe people did. It was very cheap to go to the cinema. Leeds had so many cinemas, there's not many left now. And you nearly always had a double feature. That's what I remember. It was only when, uh, obviously Lawrence of Arabia didn't because it was so long, but it was only when I came to the South that I went into cinemas where they just showed one film. Not everywhere, occasionally. The first time I saw the producers was a double bill with Young Frankenstein. And we went in halfway through the producers. And I thought the producers were one of the funniest uh, films I'd ever seen. I'd heard nothing about it. And I was with a whole group of theatre people. We were at the Watford Palace Theatre and we were rehearsing in London. And we just went to see it and I wept with laughter at it. And I thought Young Frankenstein was so boring that when that finished, I just stayed because the, the films just ran continuously. I just stayed and watched the whole of the producers. Wow, amazing. Um, you may know, David, I have interviewed some people about their memories of cinema for other projects about um, vanishing cinemas in London. And it's amazing how universal the memories of ice cream, chalk ices and Kiora seems to be. That seems to be like the common thread among all the people I've talked to who went to the cinema in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. It, well, it was a treat. It was, it was, you know, we would never have those sort of ice creams and ice ollies at, at home um, because they were expensive and they were always much better than anything you got down the local shop or from the ice cream man. That's the only time I ever remember having a Kiora. I, I love the peach Melbourne ice lollies. <laughs> so not so much the Kiora. No, no, I was never a fan. I just done that one because I was incredibly thirsty. And I remember when I first became an actor in 1970, we were uh, playing play with Kenneth Moore and we were at the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool. And in those days, I don't know if it's true now, actors would be allowed into cinemas free. It, it, was, it was a deal between the cinemas and the theatres. So I just remember the money I saved in because I'd expected to pay, and that was the first time I knew you could get into cinemas for free, is I bought, throughout the film, I went, we went to see Paint Your Wagon, uh, and I bought three peach Melbourne ice lollies. So that was my favourite. And a formative experience that took in the visual spectacle of film and the marketing aspect, which could have been um, a foreshadowing of becoming a producer. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, the sort of producer came by sort of accident, really. I mean, a lot of what I've done, even becoming an actor, was all, it was partly planned, but also it's that thing that you find in life is that 
so many things happen coincidentally. I mean, how I became a director was one of the, you know, I did want to be a producer, but it was, it was to, because I'd started at the age of 14 and I was discovered for a play called The Winslow Boy to play the title role. And I had to have elocution lessons because I had a thick Yorkshire accent. And I was chosen out of a very large number of boys. And I was the first to be chosen, but they had to have three of us because the laws of the land were such that as a 14 year old, you were only allowed to perform for two weeks and then you had to have four weeks off. So there always had to be a performer on stage one of us understudying and then the other with the time off. So it, the other boys were chosen after me. One was a public school boy and the other had been an actor for some time. So when you start, everybody has been very kind to you and they all say, don't think of acting as a full-time job and these were other actors they said because most of the time you're not going to work for most you know of a year and so that was something that I lived with and so in that first production there was Lawrence Naismith who your, your some of your audience I know I hope will know who he was well Lawrence had a he was then younger than I am now I considered him a very, very old man, but he had a pub in Reading and that was his income stream. Although if you look up his credits on IMDb and his theatre credits, he was an enormous amount. But, you know, you may see somebody that is in a film and they're very memorable, but they were only paid for the two days it took to film. And that doesn't sustain you for all the time. Another actor in, in the production was called Peter Sellier and he had an antique shop in Dorking. And these were actors that were, that were well known. So that was always in your mind. And then when I came to do it in London, I was told that they could no longer um, use me because my voice had broken. And I never believed that. And I always understood, I always felt that it was because they thought I was a bad actor. And it was only 29 years later when my father died and I went through papers that I found uh, a letter from the woman who was the casting director, who was furious with Kenneth Moore because he had decided that I was too common. And, and I've not had elocution lessons since. So he just thought, I mean, she used his words. He's, you know, he said that David's still a working class oik. And I sort of wish I'd known that at the time. My father obviously wanted to protect me because it was always deeply ingrained that I was, they felt I was not very good. If I'd known it was, you know, class war, if you like, that would have propelled me into going, fuck you, I'm going to make this work. But I, Within five months, I then did a tour of the Winslow Boy with Richard Todd, who Richard had been nominated for a, a, an Oscar. He was a bigger star in many ways than Kenneth Moore. 
Japan. He was a real war hero. And if anybody ever sees The Longest Day, um, Richard Todd plays, is it Major Howard he plays? I can't remember it. But it, it's when they go to capture Pe Pegasus Hill, uh, Pegasus Bridge, so it's all about D-Day, and very famous bridge. And in the film, Richard Todd as Major Howard is talking to an actor playing Richard Todd. Because Richard Todd actually um, captured that bridge and they held it from the Germans. So he was an extraordinary man and he, he'd done a lot of films, you know, the Dam Busters, a great many films, but his film career had sort of come to an end in the 60s and he'd put all his money into a theatre production company with two others. He was the only one putting up the money. And he did a whole series of plays. And I was, I felt I was much better in that one. And the interesting thing is I'd become 15. So in those days you could leave school at 15. And so the licensing laws didn't come in. So there was only me in it. So I played on a 11 week tour of the, the country uh, with Richard Todd, Patrick Barr, who'd been another film star, Elizabeth Sellers. I worked a lot with a lot of uh, older film stars, but that insecurity and that being aware of how precarious the business is made me want to look for this other job. What would this other job be? And when I wasn't working as an actor, I worked in wine bars and restaurants and various things, the Swiss Cottage Library, uh, music library, and, and various, you know, the usual things that actors do. And none of that ever interested me. And along the way, I became a producer when I was 20. And that's what I then decided to do. Little did I know that producing would be seriously hard. And I made more money as an actor than I ever made as a producer. But at least as a producer, you're in control of your destiny. Yeah. I mean, speaking of destiny, I mean, and just going back to um, what you said, I think Richard Todd played the character Major Ron Howard. So I think that might be yeah, that, uh, that's it. The, the irony of um, him playing somebody who is actually going to have somebody perform him later on. Looking back, because you, you've mentioned that there's an issue about potential class war, and it seems like you've got the experience of the glass ceiling in theatre um, so many years ago. Do you now, now that you've got the knowledge of what was actually said about you by Kenneth Moore in the palm of your hand, literally from a letter, do you look back on the theatre industry at the time and see the divisions more clearly about who was allowed to progress and make productions and who was kept on the back burner and which actors were put in the spotlight and which actors had to kind of get pushed into the shadow, so to speak. Uh, I think it's still like that. I mean, I think that um, uh, the, the thing about acting is it's hugely competitive. And it's an interesting thing that when people go to drama school, I was lucky that I didn't, that I had the, the breaks that I had because I, 
looked at it in a different way. And it's very interesting talking to actors. I got into drama school when I was 18, Central School of Speech and Drama, but I decided not to go because it was three years and I got offered a very good job for theatre play with Marius Goring. And um, what happens with drama school is roughly, this. I'm going back almost 50 years, in those days, it was said that between four and 5,000 people every year would want to become an actor. That, that has grown enormously. The, 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 now there are far more drama schools and there are also universities doing drama courses, which there weren't in my day. And those four to 5,000 go and audition for the drama schools and each drama school will probably see or have applications from all of them and then you will have these brutal days where a thousand people will go in over a two-day period this was the case with me and 30 of us were chosen and that does something very strange to a lot of actors that I've known is that they do think that they are already, even before they trained, that there's something really special about them. And I think that's a danger. I mean, somebody's seen something in them and yes, they've chosen something. And I've got a lot of friends that fall into this category. And so they've been chosen from 4,000, just 30 from 4,000, that sort of goes to your head. And they do leave drama school particularly those big well-known ones, thinking they're going to um, take over the world. They're gonna become the next big thing. And in every year, there's always one person leaves drama school and goes on and becomes a very big name very quickly. And the others all expect that to happen to them. And I think it gives people an unrealistic um, expectation because I've had friends who have rejected parts because they're small mm. and they think they should be doing something bigger sure. and I, I remember I mean I'm a huge believer is that you do anything because it's all about networking and when you work on things you meet more people and ideally when I wasn't working I used to try and get ASMing jobs because I'd be back in the theatre working with people I knew. Can you tell us what ASM stands for? Oh, uh, ASM is Assistant Stage Manager. So I did some, some tours with an actress called Liz Fraser on a play. Uh, she was in lots of carry-on films and uh, films like uh, uh, I'm All Right, Jack. And I did that where you're... you're, you're so if there's, for instance, there's an apple eaten in a scene. Every day you have to go out and buy a fresh apple. Um, you know, you do all sorts of things of getting things ready, preparing, it's very good grounding. So I did a, with her, I then did um, a musical of King and I for a few weeks with Peter Wingard and Sally Ann Howes. I then got a job as an acting ASM at Harrogate Rep. So you're acting in small parts and you're doing all the ASMing work. And a lot of people that go to drama school, they get very grand. I have a friend who 
turned down some wonderful jobs because he didn't think they were big enough. And I remember going for um, an interview for a BBC film. They, they would call them plays in those days. And it was written by a man called Frederick Raphael, who has written some of the, this country's great films from uh, the 1960s. Uh, a, a particular film that I liked was called Nothing But The Best with Denham Elliott and Alan Bates. And he'd written about his childhood at a public school and he was Jewish and he went to Charterhouse and he encountered a great deal of anti-Semitism. And um, so he wrote this very good play, but it was a film really. And the director who was also at the same school, who'd been head of plays at the BBC, made it as his first project when he left. And they had decided that everybody should be played by adults. So you got this, and it was all boys except for Jenny Agatha. And so you had Denham Elliott, um, Jeremy Kemp, John Normington playing the older boys. And then the next rank of younger boys were people like Michael Kitchen playing Frederick Raphael, really. Um, Tim Piggott Smith, Richard Morant. Um, I can't remember. I mean, it's an extraordinarily good cast. And then there were other parts. And I went for the part that Richard Morant did. And Richard was a very well-known actor at the time. And I went in to see Jimmy and I read. And when I got home, I'd been off various places. There was a script waiting for me. And it said, dear David, I'm really sorry, but you're not right. You, I don't think you've got enough experience to play the other part. Richard Morant was 10 years older than me. And Jimmy had written and said, I would love it if you could play the part of Forshaw. It's very small, but it's, he's got very important scenes and I'm gonna make something interesting of it. And my, I was 23, so I was 10 years younger than all the other actors. But actors like there was a Richard Warwick was, was in If. If was a very, talking about films that really affected you when you were children. I had to sneak in to see If because it was um, an 18 certificate and it had a very profound effect on me. And, and, it, and Richard was one of the three people, the three main characters. And it was wonderful acting with him. And I, I already knew Richard was gonna be in it and Denham. And I jumped at it and my agent said, David, uh, he was grooming me to be a leading actor, young actor. He said, you, you, you can't do it, don't turn it down. I said, but why? He said, it's a small part. I said, I know it's a small part, but it's in something really good. And we sort of fell out. Um, I left him a couple of jobs after that. And he was really angry that I'd agreed to do it. And what was interesting is for 10, 20 years after I'd stopped acting, directors, actors, producers, writers, people in the business would go, you used to be an actor, didn't you? And I'd go, yes, expecting them. I played the lead in something that Mike Newell, who's a now very established film director, directed, written by Ian McEwan. It was the first thing he'd written for the screen. And I always wanted people to say, oh, I remember you from Jack Flea's birthday party. 
It's a very important part for me. Nobody remembered that. Not no, no one. Even Ian McEwan, I bumped. He was in one of my films, and he had difficulty remembering it. Um, but what they all remember was school play because it was the writer and the director were the top of their game, and it was such an extraordinarily good cast. Everybody of my era, and we're talking about a time when there were only three television channels, they all say it. So whenever I see people and they actors and they go, oh, it's a very small part. I say, but small parts, you can really make something of them. And if it's a small part in something, you know, that's going to be big and people will see far better that than playing a lead in a micro budget film that disappears. Sure. I, I mean, that's got a smacks of that kind of line. There are no small parts, just like small-minded yes. actors, so to speak. Yeah. And um, with that in mind, uh, what did you? Was there any other lessons that you learned from being amongst such great actors that you've managed to carry into your toolbox um, um, today? Well, the, the, it was also the driving force for me to be to be a producer, and I originally was going to be in the first film I produced. And when the head of uh, plays, as it was then at the BBC, found out, he said, oh, you're just doing it to further your acting career. And I said, no, no, I, I want to be a producer. Mm. And so I decided not to play that role. And we cast an unknown actor who I've never heard of since called Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> I mean, whatever happened yeah. to him? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, but what I learned is, so I spent my youth with all these well-known actors, the ones I've mentioned, but also people like Gene Kent and Derek Bond, who were famous in the Gainsborough era or the Rank era in the forties and fifties. Yeah. And that's when they've been well-known. And some of these tours were not very good. I did some pretty, rubbish ones. The Winslow Boy was a good one, but The Wisest Fool with Marius Goring was awful. And Marius was doing it because he didn't get much work. And they were all eking out a living, doing these awful plays, reminding people of what they used to be. And I used to think that was very sad. And Marius, who was a star of, you know, one of the, not quite the star, but a leading part, in, in a matter of life and death and red shoes was so broke that he was living on the charity of the queen. And she'd given him a grace and favor house in Hampton Court at, for, for a stipend. Wow. And I just felt, I, I don't want to be like that. I didn't want to be an actor who became well known in his twenties and thirties and then the career would fade off and you would end up doing these dreadful tours. I mean, now the industry's changed and those sort of actors do get wonderful parts in, you know, Game of Thrones or, you know, whatever, Downton Abbey or something, that whatever's big. And, and that's good, but in those days it wasn't. And that was part of the driving force is that I was astute enough to learn. I never thought, the other thing is, I never thought I would be a star because of what had been drummed into me. And, and people did it for very kind reasons. They weren't being cruel. But as they all pointed out, you know, they would tell me who, you know, the people in their drama schools. I've been fascinated by this. 
any actor that's been to drama school will know what every other actor they were there at, where they are. And they all compare themselves with where they are in the pecking order. So there'll be one... But they never leave the squad. So and no, speak, it, they, they and never it, leave. But what's interesting is by the time they get to their 20s, uh, their 30s, mm. they start to drop off. And okay. if you can somehow survive as an actor till your 50s, then, then you've sort of made it, even if you don't do very well. But it's frightening the, the, the churn. And, and I, I don't know what it's like now. It may be different from drama schools, but certainly in those days is that, particularly if they went to RADA and Central, is that they all thought they were going to make it. And I, yeah, I just know some, some, you know, very good friends of my era who turned down very good jobs because they didn't think it was worthy of them. It's, it's a difficulty doing theatre for an actor. You, you talk about film and television and the theatre if you're a producer separately. But as an actor, they're all the same. And most actors, the majority of actors I've worked with when I was an actor never liked doing films. Films are very bitty, that they're not great for actors because you, you film out of order. So you do one scene where you're very angry and you walk out of the door and you slam it. And then you're in the street, walking down the street, but you don't film the scene walking down the street till four weeks later. So you've got to try and remember the emotions and try and link it up. And so that a lot of actors like the fact that in the theatre you do, you know, beginning to end. I mean, I, I, I've not really talked about it with actors for a long time. It may now be different. Remember, I was in an era when there were a lot of very bad films made and there were not very many films made. Now it's wonderful. There's, there's so, it, it's so cheap to make a film now, which it wasn't then. And everybody had to be a member of a union. Um, so it, it's, uh, for an actor, you never, you rarely differentiated. The only difference with the film to theater is you got a lot more money. Um, and I didn't do many films as an actor. I only really did one. Um, and, uh, I did a lot of telly and television in, in the seventies was the kind of film industry, all those very good film directors. Uh, were then working in television and the BBC was full of people. The BBC bought Ealing Studios. So all those people that had worked at Ealing uh, on the staff there doing those wonderful comedies and things, they would then get a job at the BBC. So if you shot anything on film, which I did, although they were called plays, they either shot them on tape or on film, you would go and have it edited on a Steenbeck at Ealing Studios by a film editor. And your cameraman was a film cameraman as opposed to a videotape cameraman. There were never any women in those positions then. That's interesting. Um, I thought that um, in the history of cinema, editing was one of the roles that women would be offered or be able to do, but that wasn't the case in television. Oh, um, I, I can't. I'm just going from my own experience. I, I'm sure there were. The BBC was, uh, you know, did employ a, a lot of women, but they, 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 
they tended to be like costume designers. My wife is a costume designer and I, she was working the BBC when we met. Uh, and I only ever recall in all the, the, all the productions I did with the BBC, there was only ever one woman producer I knew, a woman called Andre Molyneux. I can't remember any other. And, and the BBC, I think, at the time between plays and series, I think I'm right in saying that they had about 100 120 producers on the books at any one time, because everybody, everything was in-house. I became, by accident, the first true independent producer with the BBC. But while I was an actor, they, they were all in-house on the, on the payroll. And I knew producers there who <laughs> didn't do anything for two or three years, but they were getting the money. They just couldn't come up with anything that was green. Wow. It because the, you still had the same problem with the BBC. You develop things and it would be up to the head of drama uh, or, or drama series or the head of plays to decide what was made and what wasn't made. And if that person didn't like you, and I know producers who didn't get on, they, they just did single productions and didn't get on with either Jimmy Catherine Jones or Keith Williams or uh, Christopher Morahan, that was it. You, you were still on the staff. You just didn't make anything you, you developed. Wow. It's a bit like being a footballer who's out of favour with the boss. Yeah. yeah. It, it's sort of like any job, except you, you're still getting paid. Wow. So that was the incredible. Thing. It was interesting. A lot of those BBC producers, when the BBC um, then decided to start working a lot more with independents, most of those BBC producers didn't know what to do because all you did in those days, you would go and say, I've got this idea for a film or a play, as you would call it. And I've got this writer who's interested and you would just get the money from the script editor or whoever. It was much, even if the, the head of plays didn't like you, they would develop. So Keith Williams, when he was head of plays, was making 80 single dramas a year. Oh. 80. That, that's kind of like 80 films. And he was the only person that decided. Occasionally he would talk to Brian Wenham, who was head of BBC Two, or Graham MacDonald, I think it was, who was head of BBC One. And that was it. Now the BBC is full of endless people sitting on committees and things. But Keith would be the one to say yes or no. And But he told me that one of the years he was there, um, they made 80, but they developed 500 projects. Wow. So that's five, 500, right? And on top of that, his script editors would have to read a further two, 3,000 scripts that had been sent in by writers. And in those days, members of the public and the BBC would have to read everything that was submitted. So they spent a fortune developing. Um, and just, I mean, just like they were like a Hollywood studio. And uh, but that's a phenomenal amount. But when you're shooting on tape, so I did extraordinary interesting productions. George Baker, the actor, did something about uh, the um, First World War poets, uh, Siegfried Sassoon, Rupert Graves, and um, Brooke, what's his name? Um, William Walter Brooke was the famous one. Uh, Wilf sorry, Wilfred Owen. Wilfred Owen. And um, that was how Charles Dance was discovered. He was he was uh, playing Seafree Sassoon and 
that the night it went out, Christopher Morahan, who was making um, Jewel in the Crown, saw him and said, that's the person we've been looking for. Uh, but they did a tremendous amount of stuff. So, you know, eight, 80 plays, let alone all the drama, that, that means there was over one a week going being broadcast. And that was only in his department. You then had something in um, Birmingham called Second City First, which is giving writers like Ian McEwan on the project I won their chance. So they were, they were tremendous. It was, they were just churning out all of these things. So, um, but now you've got Netflix and others that have taken over the mantle of, of, of making lots and lots of productions. So David, I wanted to pull you back to something you said about the actor's experience of film being filming out of sequence, and that's obviously connected with budgetary restrictions. But when you yourself were producing a fictional film, did you try and make it easier for the actors or was your main consideration just always the budget? Um, you, don't, you don't ever think like that. You can't, you can't film a film um, in chronological order. I don't know if I'm, people must have done it, but it, it's just so impractical. So let's say for a film like The Weather in the Streets, which is uh, a film I did with Michael York and Joanna Lumley, is we filmed that in around Kidderminster and then around Cheltenham. So that's two different setups and locations. And, but the, the scene of slamming the door, using that as an example, will have been shot in a stately home in Kidderminster. And then the, the street, which was supposed to be London in the 1920s, was actually Cheltenham. So it just, you would have to take a crew of and actors and things of 60, 70 people, if you were to do it chronologically from one place to another. So just on the very practicalities of film, you can never do that. Um, and the problem that most actors have, and again, I'm only talking as an actor in the 70s, but I don't think it's changed, is that most film directors do not understand actors. They don't understand the process of acting. They, it's a, it's a I, I still hear it. I've heard it from, I gave Anthony Hopkins his chance to be a director and something of Dylan Thomas return journey 31 years ago. And um, I had a long discussion with him beforehand. And Tony said to me, I can't bear most actors. He said, uh, directors, he said, they just don't understand it. He said, they never, have time to talk to us about our characters, the characterization. They don't really understand that process. So actors have to do it themselves and they do it with other actors. And it was interesting when we filmed that, that um, when we finished it, I remember Tony saying to me that he said, he said, now I get it. He was 54 when we did that. He said, now I understand uh, directors. He said, I never really got it before because, and this was a small production. We shot it like a film on one camera, but in a studio. But he's been asked by all these different departments all the time. And he never really realized that, that on a set, the director's been asked by 
costume, by makeup, by, excuse me, all kinds of questions um, that they can't give the actor 100% of their time. And uh, so there are a lot of directors out there that do understand actors, but there are also an awful lot that don't. And I have given a, a lot of directors their chance, either as a producer or as a distributor. That I, I wrote an article, it's on the internet somewhere, I, I need to find out how I can log back in, but I ought to change it. But it, it I had given, I think, 48 uh, directors a chance to get their film on the screen, either as a producer or as a distributor. And what was interesting, so I worked with a lot of these, not all of them, certainly on the ones I distributed, but I worked with a lot of them beforehand. And I would say, go to the theater, go to the theater more. You never go to the theater. And they said, why do you have to go to the theater? I don't like it. I say, no, but you'll understand the process of an actor of building a part. They have to build a part emotionally, and the structure of it, they have it worked out. And that's what they've got to do on a film and they're gonna need guidance for that. And they're gonna want you to understand that process. And, you know, a lot of films are made in the editing, but I have noticed on films that I was in as an actor, you can see how you go from one scene into another where, the emotional level doesn't match because you've shot it out of chronological order. But there's been nobody there to remind you. I mean, the greatest problem I have on the documentaries I make, because I'm in them, I'm in all of them, I'm on a journey. And there's nobody to tell me whether I'm overdoing it or not, or how I'm coming across. And it, I find I need a director to say, David, that's a bit over the top or tone that down or that's a bit. When I was in Auschwitz-Birkenau, I was sort of frozen by the history I was surrounded with. I kind of found it very hard. I became very, very serious, too serious. And I have a frown in my, between my eyebrows and that became deeply etched and a lot of the sequences I filmed there, I've not used because I look at it and it's just, it's too emotional. In the scene itself, where I am, what happened, I, I then, when I saw the rushes of that, I decided I hadn't to get emotional at all. I had to be very, with my narration and with the way that I was doing it, very straight on one level because if I brought emotional into it it somehow was not right it was demeaning is the wrong word but it was kind of not right for the subject and um, that's what actors rely on in films and and I I do think that a lot of actors love it when you rehearse a film the leading actors do rehearsing um, it, it helps them with their process. And, and I found a lot of directors have said to me, even some very famous directors will say, you've worked with so-and-so or you know such and such a person. I say, yes. They go, what a difficult actor. And I go, what do you mean difficult? And they said, well, we, we're doing this scene. And they kept saying, look, 
I don't un I don't understand quite what the motivation is for this. I, you know, I'm I'm not sure why I'm suddenly getting very angry. Why you want me to do it like that? And the good directors, the directors that understand the actor's process, will work with them and explain why they want it like that. And the others will just go open the just go and open the fucking door and walk out of it. They get cross. They don't understand sometimes what is involved in that process. And yes, there are actors who can be pains, but, you know, films are really, I will never have, unless I'm forced to do it, you'll never see on my film a David Wilkinson film. Just won't ever say that. I can't do that because you know, on, on the documentaries I now direct. So I came to directing at the age of 57, which everybody said was far too late. And I am very reliant on the shoot with Don McVeigh, who's my DOP. And then in the edit with John Walker. And we work as a team. And because I come from the theatre, I believe in esprit de corps. I think it's very important. So in the theatre, everybody makes decisions, uh, uh, suggestions. So they all say to the director, what about this? What about that? And it's by and large, it's very welcome. And in the film and television world, it's not, it's frowned upon. And people do get cross. And I don't because you, John Schlesinger, I, the, I've never had a lesson to do anything as an actor, a producer or anything. And the only tip I ever had my wife worked with John Schlesinger a lot and he was doing uh, a scene at Twickenham Studios on Cold Comfort Farm and it was a scene with Miriam Margulies and Rufus Sewell and I went along to see them and, and Amy I dropped her off there and she said oh, why don't you pop in and see John and watch on the set and I always feel very awkward on somebody else's set it's you know it's like uh, I don't know, it just, it's, it's very awkward, but I did, I was there. And John spotted me and he said, oh, come, come and stand with me. And he asked Miriam, he wanted the props people to, to do something. He said, this is not right. Miriam was whipping up something in a bowl. And he said, it's not right. We need this, we need that. So he told the props to bring a pint of milk and period pint of milk and put it on the table and whatever else. So there was a pause of about 15 minutes while we, while he, he got set up. So John and I just chatted about this and that and what I was doing. And in a sort of awkward pause, I don't know why I asked it, but a sort of awkward pause. And I said, John, I said, is there a secret to filmmaking? You know, some, and he said, well, sort of, he said. And he said, it's this, he said, 50% of the success of any film, at least 50%, he said, stressing it, is the people you choose. And he said, you make sure that you choose the best people in each position, and then you let them get on with it. You totally trust them to get on with it. And he said, the other secret, I think, is if they have a suggestion, you listen to it, you welcome suggestions. He said, because 
And he gave me an example in Marathon Man. And I can't, it's a long time since he said this, it's 30 years. And I can't remember what it was, but it was something to do with the scene with Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier, where Olivier is drilling the teeth of Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, it, it, it was something in that scene. And he said, the grip came up to me and he said, John, why have you thought about doing whatever it is? And he said, he thought about it and he thought, that's a really good idea, so I'll do it. And he said, when the film came out, he said two or three of the reviews picked up this thing that the grip had come up with and accredited it to John. And he said, I'd made a better film because of that grip. And if that, I had run a set where that grip had felt he could not talk to me, the film would be poorer for it. So I've, I've thought that's the wisest thing I've ever, it's the only thing I've ever taken from any other director and I do use it. So it, it sometimes it, it can be, um, frustrating. So when I'm unsure of a scene or something, we've edited it, or I'm unsure of something, I'll send it to, so John Walker and I will work on it. And then I will send a copy to my executive producers and I will send it, uh, you know, link on Vimeo to Chris Barnett, who's the composer, to Don, who shot it, to a few other people. And then you get this sort of bun fight where sometimes everybody will have a strong opinion about it, but it, every opinion will be different. And, I, and, and so I sort of, as Don once said, he said, why do you do this? He said, you know, it does get you into a mess with five people or six people being very passionate and wanting their version to be used. And because something good can come out of it, you know, it... it I was very stubborn on, on something on the first film that I made. And I, I can't remember what it was. And I was absolutely saying, I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to change that. And Bill, who's my executive producer, one of them, and he used to be head of film at the National Media Museum, which is like the BFI in the North. And Bill has set up and run and many film festivals and things. And he watches more films than most people I know. And he just put this to me of why it wasn't a good idea. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not gonna listen to that, you're wrong. And I thought about it and thought about it. And then five days later, I thought, he's absolutely right. And I looked at it again and I thought, yeah, it's just gonna look strange. So my film has benefited by him doing that. So I think that any director has to listen to suggestions. Sometimes the suggestions will be terrible. You've got to listen to them. And, and you occasionally, I think I may have said to people, that's a daft thing. That's wrong of me. That, that, that is, if I have done that, then uh, that, that is wrong of me. You, you have to consider things. And I love it. I mean, because I, because I don't do big productions, I do micro budget productions. So often it's just Don and I at a location or it's Don, I and a sound man like Rory. It's just the three of, you know, when, when we went around Europe on, on Getting Away With Murders, which is my latest film, is that we would just come to a location. I remember we went to one place, Bad Tolts, and we, none of us had been there and we were losing the light. So there was a main street and it was a 
a Nazi war criminal who was responsible. He gave the orders to kill um, 750 French citizens and he never got prosecuted or anything. And he lived in this place called Bad Tolls. And it is, so it's an important scene. And when we got to the town, we realized that was an, the, the entire town was built around one street, one enormously long street that ran down the hill. And Don suddenly said, because we arrived late in the afternoon, he said, look, the light's going. He said, we've got this small part of the street he said, how do you want to shoot it? And I quickly looked and I said, OK, I'm going to walk up the hill. And he said, we've got to be quick and you've got to walk this side, because when we lose the light, it's it's just going to be awful because the buildings just will make it so dark. And we didn't have any you know, portable lights with us and it would have looked stupid anyway. So um, we quickly had to work it out. We didn't have time. And. It, it's it's a nice scene and it works and we've caught it in the sun and lo and behold we did shoot two scenes when the sun had gone and Don was absolutely right um, it was just too dark and unusable and, and what's interesting is th the scene that Don and I thought didn't work because we what we do is I have a little bit of a script in my head and then I improvise when we get there and always on the first take and then I'll do another time. And Don will say, I think that's too long. I think, you know, it's, it's taking far too long and you're stressing the wrong things in doing this. And I said, yeah, you're right. And then we work it out. So we'll do five or 10 takes of it. And it's interesting that on that one, um, John, the editor, chose the very first take. So the first, the, the thing that we thought was wrong because it was too um, wordy and there was information in there that we didn't need. And of course, we're thinking, doing it on the day, I'm not thinking as an editor. And Don's thinking of how it's being shot. But John is thinking, I can use that scene because I can take that bit out, which is not worth using, and I can cover it with a photograph of a fountain. And then I can use, then we can do, and it's just great doing that. So the scene that we thought was hopeless turned out because of his clever editing to be the one that we used. So that's teamwork. If, I, I, if I'd been one of those directors who'd insisted on things, and I love it both with um, John Walker and then David Hughes who edited uh, the first film, I allowed them to go and muddle it all up because by the time I'd finished filming, I've got the script getting but also I, I i do this thing and, and this happens because of the low budget nature is that i film and edit i film and edit i film and edit and 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 i'm doing that because i've run out of money and i need to raise more money so i don't like doing nothing so i start editing and um usually with a junior person um and that sounds a terrible thing but it's because i can afford them and they need the experience they need the credit so I can I can play around with it, but I'm doing it as me. And, and so I will take to the editors a structure that I've worked on and then they will jumble it all up and they'll talk to me about it. And I'll get very cross. It's the only time I get cross because I go, no, this has to be like this. A there and B there and C there and D there. And this is why it has to be like that. And then they'll go and argue it. 
and we'll have a very heated discussion, sometimes getting right, really cross with each other. And then I'll go, okay, go away and do what you want. But I definitely want it to start like this. It has to start like this. And then they'll do A, and then they'll cut to G, and then they'll cut to R, and then they'll come back to B, and then they'll, and I'll look at it and I'll, there'll be things I don't like, but there's other things I go, my goodness, that's brilliant. I mean, when, when I was in Auschwitz, I did not want any cutaways. I didn't want them at all. And John said, you've got to, you've got to do it. And so we cut away to a couple of Holocaust survivors who I film in their house, one in their house in Leeds and one in their house in Harpenden. And I was resistant to that for about a week because I was going, like Claude Landsman with Shoah, who's it's a nine and a half hour film. And it's, it's no cutaways, it's no photographs, it's no footage, it's no nothing. It's just him talking to these different people. And I wanted to be a bit like that. But of course, modern audiences won't accept that. My film is already incredibly long. And John was right, he was absolutely right. And I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that I am not that dictatorial director. And I do know many, I've worked with many directors as a producer, well, as a, as a distributor, certainly. And I've worked with uh, three directors as a producer who have been, no, I'm the director, this is what we're doing. You know, it's got to be done like this. And, you know, and one of them, the film was slated absolutely slated and I'm afraid it's because the director would not listen to his editor nor to his producers in this case. Well speaking of putting people uh, in front of yourself as a director and putting uh, some something else or someone else on show or in a spotlight you're a big exponent of the city of Leeds and you often try to feature Leeds in documentaries that you've directed could you let our audience know what's the fascinating elements you find about Leeds and what are you trying to share with the rest of the world and the world of cinema? So I was born and grew up in Leeds. And um, when I was at school, um, we were told, you know, coming from Yorkshire, Yorkshire people are, it's almost like a country. It's kind of very chauvinistic in a way. And, and we were, you know, we're the best at this, we're the best at that, we're brilliant. You know, that kind of, I, was, I don't like that kind of thing, that, you know, entitlement sort of thing. And so you were, we were taught a lot of things at school, told a lot of things at school. And, and one of them was, you know, that film was invented in Leeds. And you're going, oh yeah, you know, what are you going to tell me next? The wheel was invented in Leeds, or you know, the 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 aeroplane was invented in Leeds. You know, it was that kind of thing. You you took a lot of it with a pinch of salt. But in my mid-teens, I really did discover that um, the world's first film was made in Leeds by somebody called Louis Le Prince, who was a Frenchman, and he did it in on the 14th of October, 1888. And this was not known at all. Um, in, in the UK, they go on about William Freeze Green, who was a fantasist, I mean, absolute fantasist. And there was no, there's no evidence that he did what he did, but there was a film made 
about called the magic box with the, the biggest number of stars of any film, British film ever made. And it was wholly financed by the British government. And it was going to be part of the festival of Britain. And it was to prove that um, William Freeze Green made the world's first film. And it was made by the Bolton brothers. And the film restoration was recently paid for by Martin Scorsese. And if you look at the film, it actually alludes to, at the beginning of it, it mentions Louis Le Prince and at the end, in, in, in a sort of, there's a sort of memorial on the wall saying the name. And in the film, Robert Donat, who's playing William Freeze Green, is asked by his son, Dad, it says in this history book that somebody else invented film. I, I think it says Edison in that way. But I know you did, did you invent it? <coughs> And Robert Donat says, well, I think I did. He said, there was a man the year before me, which was William Freeze Green, uh, which, sorry, was Louis Le Prince. That's a Freudian slip there. There's a man the year before me, Louis Le Prince. He doesn't mention the name, but he, his camera was nothing like the cameras used today. And I had the first, my patent was first. Now, that's wrong on both accounts because um, Louis Le Prince's patent was long, it was, was in 1888. Um, William Freeze Green's patent was in, or patent, whichever you want to say, was in 1889. And the film that Louis Le Prince shot was on a single lens camera. Now, he did experiment with the 16 lens camera, which he shot some footage in, uh, in Paris. So um, it became my quest to try and make this film. Uh, so uh, I would try and people didn't believe me. They would laugh that somehow Leeds, come on, David, you've been, you know, you've been ridiculous. Why Leeds and things? Or well, why Leeds again? So, yeah, I know. So it, it was really odd of, of, that people just didn't believe it because it wasn't written down then, e even when I came to make it. So I started making it, shooting it in 2013. So it took me two years to make. And I originally had another director. I'd always wanted a director from Leeds. And um, he, he left it very early on. And... Um, I couldn't find anybody else to take over and I ended up doing it. And all my friends said, but David, you chose all the locations. You wouldn't let the other director do it. Well, even before I'd got involved, you've chosen the locations and you've chosen everybody that's going to be in it. You, you were already directing it without knowing. Um, but I, I just felt I had to prove this because I felt very angry that the reaction, so I'd go to Cannes or New York and people would say, you know, where do you come from? Um, and uh, I'd say, oh, I come from where Leeds was invented. And they go, well, you don't sound American or you don't sound French. And I'd say, no, 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 it was invented. It wasn't actually invented, but that's what I thought at the time. Um, in Leeds, I said, and they said, oh, bollocks. We don't, we don't believe that. Because, and this, when I first started doing it, there was no internet, so you couldn't look it up. And, and there were no, apart from in Leeds Library, there were no, there was no information telling about Louis Le Prince. So it became this real quest. And even 
even when I was filming, the Wikipedia pages didn't mention it. Now they've all changed and they all mention Louis the Prince. Um, and interestingly, um, Scorsese, while I was making the film, he wrote a, a, an article for the London Review, of, uh, the New York Review of Books. And in it, he said that the first film was made by, uh, it was an amateur film made by a man called Louis Le Prince. And something like that is very short. And I got in touch with Scorsese and he agreed to be in the film, or I, I got in touch with his personal assistant, Lisa Frechette. But the problem was he was always so busy. And when I was in New York, he couldn't fit me in. And so I ended up finishing the film without him. But he was the only filmmaker I ever came across in the 33 years that it took me to get the film on the screen that ever knew the story. So when I, and now the story's much more widely known, partly because of my film. So when in making the film, I had to get it across that even that when I started it, people in the film industry had never heard of him, which is why I've got people like Sir Ronald Harwood, Tom Courtney, Sir Tom Courtney, and Joe Esterhouse. I, I filmed around about a hundred people in the industry. And I asked them all this simple question, had you heard of a man called Louis Le Prince? And they all said, no. And then they, I would tell them who he was and they'd all go, but why do we not know who, who he was? Um, and there was, actually there was one person um, and he was the artistic director of the Galway Film Flower. And he was the only person that said, yes, I do know who he was, but he didn't know him as a, film director he thought he was a filmmaker he thought he was a photographer and the reason he knew him and this is why people don't know the Louis Le Prince story is that um, on the 16th of September 1890 Louis Le Prince boarded the Dijon to Paris train and he disappeared and nobody was ever found his luggage was never found there was nothing he just disappeared off the face of the earth and therefore, because there was no body, nobody, his relatives were able to fight for his claim that his patent was first. And in the seven years, there has to be, there are seven years before there is a presumption of innocence in law. So seven years have to go by and this person doesn't turn up and then they're pronounced dead. And in that seven years that went by, um, Edison and uh, the Lumieres uh, got the jump on Le Prince and they then became what they became. And many people, I, I explore all of this in the film, many, many people think that uh, Edison had uh, Le Prince bumped off. And I've got a policeman going into all of that. We need to start the investigation there. That sounds like a very plausible theory. Yeah, um, and there are there were 15 pioneers. So it was um, Edward Moybridge from Kingston in uh, Surrey, and there's a museum there in the library to him. I've been there, well worth a trip. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, he was the man that set everybody off. And it's terrible that most people, um, uh, Gary Oldman's been trying to make a film of the Moybridge story for years with him directing it. 
and with, he had Ray Fiennes at one time playing Moybridge and some other very famous actor was also going to be in it, as well as Gary himself. And he could never raise the money. And it's sad that most people now remember Moybridge as the last person to murder a man who admitted he murdered the man and got let off. Gary Oldman has played Winston Churchill and he's also played, uh, I think, Mankiewicz, who is behind the uh, feature film Citizen Kane. So hopefully he's on a trajectory of playing people from the past. Well, he'll, he'll never get the money, I don't think, because this, this is the fundamental problem, is that films about the film industry never do well. And it, it's interesting that David Fincher's father wrote Mank, the screenplay, decades ago, because he died a long time ago, because they're never viable. And it is only because you've got a company like Netflix who are spending huge sums of money that they wanted a relationship with Fincher, you know, one of the world's greatest directors. And that was the price. I think they've got a relationship with another project because I think there's another thing called Love and Robots, which is David Fincher running an animation studio, which is, yeah, I think it's an annual series that comes up. Yeah, but that was the payoff. Um, Fincher would work with Netflix if they financed Mank. And it was also made in uh, black and white, and that, that also does very badly. Uh, and it, I, I don't think it's been that popular with the public at large. I mean, it is with everybody in our industry, but I, I know so many people not involved in the industry who, who have Netflix and not one of them seen it. It's fair to say it wasn't immediately popular with our podcast either. Um, and, and that's interesting because it's why I, I failed to get money for the first film is that People kept saying, but David, it's just, you know, a filmmaker wanking on about the film industry. It's boring. It's not of interest. We're not. And uh, plus half of the people I went to didn't believe it. They said, oh, it, it, if he'd really done this, I would have heard about him. I know everything there is about film. So it was a, a dilemma. So that's why it came. Uh, somebody asked me, I did a, an interview on CBS this morning. It got tremendous publicity when it came out. I was on News at 10 with it, the Today programme, CBS this morning. And it was one of those, I, I've never seen the interview. I don't know if they used it, but they asked a very good question that nobody else I don't think had asked me up until that point. He said, if you'd not come from Leeds, would you still made the film? And the answer is no, I wouldn't, because it was the driving force because it's my tribe, if you like. It's, it's the fact that people didn't think that people from Leeds could be creative. And, um, you, know, it was, uh, you know, Leeds was a very creative community. That's quite interesting because I believe that William Freeze Green still has some partisan supporters who are claiming him for Bristol. Oh, he, uh, he's, uh, he has. I mean, I know one of them very well. And th there is no evidence, this is the thing, that no film exists for a start, when he was at the um, Chester Photographic Exhibition in 1890, he, the, the, this, and a lot of this is the book, which the Magic Box is based upon, is based upon this fact. It said that he showed film to people, um, but he didn't. Um, what he did, he, showed, he produced a strip of film and he held it up and said, this is film. He didn't actually show it being projected. 
But to be fair to Freeze Green, Louis Le Prince never mastered projection. I believe he had done when he died, because there were, before he died, there were people, witnesses who said they saw it being projected, but he never, there were not enough of them. He never projected it in a, in a, um, a cinema. And what's interesting, this is, this is how the world turns, is that had Le Prince lived, he was going to show at a very important house in America, in New York, the Jamel Mansions, which was very famous because it was George Washington's headquarters during the War of Independence. And had he shown it there to a lot of very wealthy people, I believe that he would have got the money he needed to start mass manufacturing. And that meant that Leeds would become a place of manufacturing of um, cameras and equipment, but New York, where Louis Le Prince was then living, would have been become an important part of the film industry process. And the reason that, do you know where Hollywood was founded? I know there's a documentary, and it's a small one called E17 Hollywood, which talks about films that were made in E17 in the, I think, 1900s. But I, I'm not sure where else. Okay, there was only one reason that Hollywood was founded. So Thomas Edison, who was a really nasty man, nobody liked him. He decided to own and control everything. I mean, Edison himself rarely did anything. He got a man called Dixon who did all the camera stuff and Edison just put his name on it. Um, but people think he did it. That sounds like Apple and yeah. the relationship to Steve Jobs. Yes. He controlled the manufacture of cameras, the processing, he controlled film. So if you wanted to be a filmmaker, you had to license or buy everything from Edison under American law. So these filmmakers okay. who could get cameras and film stock in France, Germany, and, and uh, I think France and Germany predominantly, they could go to a state called California, which had not signed up to the laws of the rest of the United States. So they, they could use this unencumbered. And also the light happened to be very good and it was warm and it was easier to make films there. But that's the main reason sure. that Hollywood became Hollywood was to get out of the control of Edison. So, Louis Le Prince would have never done that. He wasn't one of, he wasn't a nasty man. He was a, a man that welcomed people and ideas and worked with other people. So it, it would have been a different world. Hollywood might not have been what it is now. Well, that brings us to the end of part one. Thank you very much for taking part, David Wilkinson. Thank you for asking me. I just hope I haven't uh, gone off on too much of a tangent and waffled a lot and that you're listeners will learn something. I'm absolutely certain they will. That's been an absolute treasure trove of information and we look forward to you joining us again for part two. Yes, thank you. It's been great fun. I'm looking forward to it. Glad to hear that. Take care for now. I've been King Dom and I've also been joined by TJ. Thank you, Dom, and see you soon, David. Really appreciate being on the Great stuff. Join us again for part two of our Geek Sweat interview with David Wilkinson.